everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy, A Dumb Guy, a podcast. I am your resident dungeon master, nerd boy, and smart guy, Johnny Morrison, and this is our co-host, musician, and filmmaker, and dumb guy, Christian Surge. Ah, you said it. I am not a Dungeons & Dragons dungeon master, so... You are a smart guy. <laughs> is that that's the bar? Is that if you <laughs> if you dungeon master a game, you're all of a sudden a smart guy? I don't think that's an effective test for who's a smart well, see, guy. Well, I grew up in the '80s and early '90s, and so Dungeons and Dragons was a big deal. You know, like people were killing themselves when their characters died. That's right, because you the '80s you have the satanic scare, and you have like yep. all the movies that come out, the TV shows. What's that? Because there's a there's a famous. Um, it's famous now. I don't know if it was famous then, but it's like one of Tom Hanks' first films where he is like a young person who plays Dungeons and Dragons and then loses his mind. Oh, I want to see that now because that sounds like a great movie. <laughs> Wait, that sounds like a movie where he goes to the island and loses his mind. It's same plot, but different island. One's a real island. The other one is an island of the mind. Okay, well, um, instead of Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s, we actually played top secret because it wasn't mystical it was a uh, spy game and i probably would rather play dungeons and dragons especially now that it's you know super popular it but. is very popular now what are we chatting about today today was john lewis's funeral and i know we're going to talk about a lot of things but i thought that uh just one comment from uh, barack obama that he said was really kind of uh, kind of struck me the life of John Lewis, in so many ways, exceptional. It vindicated the faith in our founding, redeemed that faith, that most American of ideas, the idea that any of us, ordinary people, without rank or wealth or title or fame, can somehow point out the imperfections of this nation and come together and challenge the status quo. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, that reminds me of another quote from the same, which I think is similar it's like coming in the same context as what you said, where Barack Obama said that John Lewis was a founding father of that fuller, fairer, and better America, which is such a, it's such a fascinating thing for someone like Barack Obama and John Lewis to say, and then for John Lewis to believe, like, especially if you're John Lewis, your life has been spent battling this story that your life does not matter. And then for us to be able to eulogize him by saying that he believed in a fuller and fairer, better vision of something is it's like, so that's such a crazy notion that you could believe in something beautiful when that very thing that you believe in has demonized you, dehumanized you and enacted violence against you. And he's done so well with it, meaning he Mm -hmm. has done it with grace and empathy Mm -hmm. and uh, strength and courage. And there are a lot of people that don't like him. Yeah. And I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. Well, we really are going to miss John Lewis. I hope that uh, more people look into his life and find out really what he stood for. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So the other day I had a conversation about right before the pandemic, we were looking at the language that the media was using to describe what was happening. And it was very undescriptive. And exaggerated. That, that makes me think, actually. That makes me think of something someone texted me after our last episode um, where I, I, I used, you did not do this, I used exaggerated language to describe the um, agents who were in Portland, the federal agents that were in Portland. 
I use the language of troops and soldiers repeatedly. Like if you go listen to the podcast, I use the language troops specifically quite a few times. And a friend of mine who is in the military, um, he texted me and he was like, Hey, love the podcast. Agree with your thoughts. But I want to make a distinction between troops, men and women who serve in the military versus the federal agents that were in Portland. And he sent me this quote that I just thought was a helpful thing. He said, quote, it's semantics, but the language can be misleading. And I want to distance myself as a soldier from the fascist tactics of the Department of Homeland Security, end quote. And I thought like that was a fair point that he was making about the language that I had used that, to your point, it was exaggerated and and unhelpful because it wasn't specific. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I mean, if we're going to be a smart guy, dumb guy podcast, I need to be able to own when I am a huge dumbass, uh, and I use the wrong language that is not helpful to make a cause. Now I agree with everything I said within the context. Yeah. But you know, well, I use bad language all the time and the wrong language in the language that incites people. And so I'm trying not to, but it just doesn't always happen that way. So <laughs> good for you. I, 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 semantics are important because we're seeing politicians use semantics against us mm-hmm. to incite us to bring more fear and confusion. And I don't mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. So you sent me an article in The Atlantic. Yes. So I sent you an article... Um, today we're recording on Thursday. You were listening to it on Monday, but on Thursday, um, all of the large tech companies were dragged before Congress for, uh, to, to give testimony and testify before Congress. And so you had Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon before Congress talking about their role in politics, talking about mainly their monopolization of power and influence and the market in each of their various fields. In the Atlantic article, was more of a thought piece than it was a reporting. So the thought piece was this journalist is watching that happen while using all the technology that is being represented. Like he's like watching it on an iPad as Tim Cook is um, testifying. And, you know, he's talking about how he just ordered something from Amazon and he had just talked to his Google home or whatever. And the question that is kind of running throughout the whole piece is what are we losing, especially in the midst of COVID-19 when these very few tech companies take over more and more of the digital social landscape of our lives. First off, I think that this article paints a really cool picture. It's also an article that borderlines on, you know, fact or fiction. This is his experience. And sometimes when people read articles, they're like, oh, it's the actual opinion of the Atlantic or, oh, this is, He's trying to be scientific news. This is not that. This is actually a really good story. I was really uh, kind of enthralled and kind of entrenched in his experience because I'm experiencing the same thing. Yep. I, I'm working at home. I'm ordering from Amazon. We ordered. We literally ordered a purple mattress, and it came. I ordered, yeah. you know, in the mail. We order sometimes our food that we can't get. We order from Amazon, and I go back to a Zoom meeting, unmute the call, unvideo it because I don't want to mm-hmm. be in the meeting sometime. So, yeah, I think it was a really interesting article about how we're chained now Mm -hmm. in even more ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 100%. And then COVID has made that even more prolific. Like, we're chained in ways that are even more substantive now. Because whatever human contact we had before at the office or in churches or in, like, bars and restaurants, all of that has also been removed from us. 
and is mediated through these large tech companies. And what is up with Zuckerberg? What is his face? What does he do? <laughs> That's the same thing that happened when he, you know, where he testified um, about Facebook's involvement in the 2016 election with like Cambridge Analytica and the selling of data. I remember that was one of the things that came out of that was people were like, Zuckerberg's a robot. Yeah. <laughs> do you think he gets training for that? Like, do, do he, is there like a robot training sector of Facebook that comes in and trains him? Or does he get, <laughs> I'm sure he gets trained from some high security um, officials, actually. Probably. I, mean, I, think about, I think about Zuckerberg, and I think um, there was an article that came out last year from Chris Hughes, who is one of the co-founders of Facebook, and it was a fascinating article because Chris talks about like what what's happened to Facebook. What's the problem with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg? And his his like big point is he's like Mark Zuckerberg's not a bad dude. He's not he's not a robot. He's not a super genius. He's just a person who accumulated too much for too long, and that creates in you like a well you be, there's an impunity to that, a disconnection mm-hmm. from like the rest of humanity when you're a billionaire that young for that long. So he has beetle syndrome is what I call it. Beetle syndrome. <laughs> okay. What's beetle syndrome? Well, if you know me at all, you know that I don't like the Beatles. And the reason I don't like the Beatles is because they gained their popularity, their international stardom from bubblegum pop songs. Like I want to hold your hand and a cover song, shake it up, baby. Like that's, those are the, the songs that they became popular and they became popular way too fast and then we, as America, we just, we think they're so awesome. And we just, we, we don't, we don't see them for who they are. This bubblegum pop band, they got too famous, too fast. And so Mark Zuckerberg, you're, that's, a, that's a controversial take. You're going to have a lot of <laughs> listeners, I think, really mad at you for that one. It's hard for me to listen to the Beatles and it's, it's hard for me because they were in the right place at the right time. And yeah. Mark as well. Yeah. I act like I know him. Mark. <laughs> my friend, Mark. My friend, Mark. You know, he got it right on one idea is that people year after year want to share, are willing to share double the information that they were the year prior. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps pushing that and pushing that and pushing that. And the Beatles did it too. Every album, they, they overdubbed more and more tracks, and yeah. they made their songs more and more strange. They just kept going and going and going, and then all of a sudden, we have Yellow Submarine. I'm sorry. I, all you Beatle fans out there, I am sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, you actually can hold it personally against me, but uh, right place at the right time, bubblegum pop songs. It's Mark Zuckerberg. That's, I actually think that's a really interesting... So one of the notes that I was taking about this article, and, and just about Facebook, Google... Amazon, Apple, they were all there. One of the things I think is so fascinating about this conversation is what you just named with the Beatles, which is how these large tech companies create a homogenous culture. Hmm. And I feel like that's what you just named with the Beatles, which is like you blow up these like very limited sounding pop songs and then all music begins to sound like these pop songs. And I think you have the same thing that happens when Facebook owns all the major social media platforms. So they own Facebook, they own Instagram, I think they own WhatsApp now. So they own all these major social media platforms, which all of us as creatives are forced to play in. Like we promote mm-hmm. this podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we host it through Apple, Google. Like we, you know, 
there's this like homogenous cultural stream that if you want to play in the world, you have to do it through these media companies, which puts a ton of pressure on creatives like us who are trying to get started, forces us into certain kinds of streams. And I think it ruins, potentially I think it ruins and robs what could have been like local organic, um, creative expressions that would emerge more from like within communities and more organically and more fluidly. And it ruins those things because it monopolizes one culture over everybody else. Oh yeah. The machine is running. It is huge and it is destroying. I read today that, um, 39.2% of small businesses have failed Mm. since COVID. Mm -hmm. That's from NPR. That is horrifying. We are going to see some strange things come from that. But I, um, to your point, this homogenization, you, uh, I, there I go. I used, I used a big word. I had to use the big word. Homogenization. That so naturally monot- do. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of whitewashing or one color or mm. monotoning this, uh, the music experience or the political experience or mm-hmm. you name it, right? Like that is, I think, the danger. Speaking of music, I, I am about to release my first single in over 20 years. Whoa. First of all, perfect segue. Second of all, very exciting. <laughs> well, just to tell you a little bit about it, uh, you know, I'm the guy who, uh, like when you see the picture of the band, I'm behind the stage playing the keyboard or I'm <laughs> not in the picture or, you know, I've spent a lot of my time backing up uh, rock and roll bands, uh, you know, national bands, uh, my own bands and playing in the studio and recording and being that guy that you just typically don't see very often or very much at all. And I just have had so many songs. And so I'm having it mix, mixed and mastered at 17th street recording in Newport beach. Um, uh, Sugar Ray re- uh, recorded and um, mastered and mixed some of their stuff. So I'm hoping to have some good sound coming out of there. That's awesome. That's very exciting. Thanks, man. So last words on the this Atlantic article, Facebook, Apple was there. Who else was there? Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Um, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg. And then um, the CEO of Google. I think they're making it like bandits. I mean, how many iPads have the schools purchased and all of us purchased and we're getting all of our stuff from Amazon and we're posting every article mm-hmm. on Facebook. Mm-hmm. One, well, and you named it like with how many businesses are closing, what, f- what is most likely to fill the gap of those closing businesses? That's places like Amazon who are, have Loving. the money in the bank to survive. They're doing better than ever because people are ordering online and so then the gap that's filled by the closing of the local is going to be filled by these large billion-dollar, trillion-dollar companies who, mm. with absolute impunity, because they're so large, do whatever they want. They share misinformation. I mean, Facebook has directly resulted in the 2016 election, the genocide in Myanmar. Like, they get to operate with total impunity because of what how did, much power and size. What did you say? Genocidal mirrors? There's a, the genocide in Myanmar. Oh, okay. Which you can trace back to, to misinformation that was shared on Facebook that Facebook never did anything about. They didn't clamp down on it. They didn't stop the spread of information because in Myanmar, Facebook is the primary way people access the internet. 
So they have a monopolization on accessing the internet and information in this place, and it directly led to the spread of misinformation. What do we do? I mean, that's a big subject too. How do we? How do you censor Facebook? You know, that's mm. just been a big, big subject that everybody's talked about. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, your final words. Final words would be. I think we should probably end on we should end that chat on something hopeful. And here's what I think is hopeful is I do think there's a way in our own lives and our own communities to push against the homogeneity of large tech companies, which is to invest in local communities. And I don't just mean that financially. I mean like to embed your own life, existence, rhythms within the local, within your neighborhood, within the people around you, and let that be a source that. Um, gives context to the information that you read, that gives context to the way you perceive other people, where you spend your money is a part of that. Re-embed your life in the local because these large tech companies, whether they mean to or not, they disembed us. How how can anybody do that? It's a, I think it's a great utopian thought, what you just said, but it's like right now, how do I survive? How do I survive by spending my money at local businesses? Because most of them are closed or not uh, servicing people or I don't know. I think it's really difficult. I think it's a really difficult challenge. Yeah, it is. It is totally difficult. But I think that if we would be willing to, I know this will sound like mundane and simple, but if we'd be willing to even begin like walking our neighborhoods and getting to know our neighbors, we would find Mm -hmm. that a new kind of creative space opens up. Um, which is one thing that COVID-19 actually enables more than ever. Like we, our household is, some of the things you've named, we experienced like our small business closed in the midst of COVID-19. But one of the things that's happened is that we know our neighbors far better than we ever did pre COVID-19 because we spend more time gardening. We spend more time in the yard and outside. And all of a sudden we're getting connected to the people around us who are different than we are. Mm. Yeah, very true. I live in um, a city that's primarily uh, it's named after a Hispanic name and a Hispanic saint and I live in the Hispanic area of there, of, of the neighborhood. And yeah, we've definitely got to know our neighbors. And the 20 kids that now love to pick the flowers out of my garden. And yeah. I just, I'm trying to stop them. <laughs> I'm like, no, look, don't pick. You pick them later until they're, when they're full grown. So can I, I know that we need to move on, but I, I want to ask you a question. You're about to release a song, which you're going to do through Apple. Uh, you're going to do on Spotify probably like you'll release it probably through those normal means yes. so people can hear it. Yes. Do you feel like there is a pressure on you that this like marketplace creates that is different than it was when you were trying to release songs 30 years ago or something like you said you, you have been a part of? Oh yeah. I mean, Back when we were uh, in 1996, right? This is pre-internet revolution. We were driving to LA, meeting with record execs. They were giving us development deals where we would have very little money, buy a van, and they'd put us on the road and we'd play six nights a week. And that's how they developed bands. And then we had mailing lists and we mailed mm-hmm. out CDs and and letters. And, and then when you released it, it was based upon a very different retail market and radio. Mm-hmm. And now um, the standard has just gotten higher because you can record music for so inexpensively and mm-hmm. you know you can release it on all the platforms within seconds. So marketing really has a lot to do with it. And it's um, it's very different. And you know, artists who are getting signed 
right now signed by a label, they have to have a big following. Usually, mm-hmm. usually it's just a, hey, we're going to help you manage your stardom better because yep. we know how to do it. It's not even a record deal. It's just a, like a management deal. Yep. That's what I think is interesting about it. It's like the internet democratized access. So like we get to do a podcast, which is kind of a, you know, we don't have to be yeah. a part of some label or whatever. We get to do a podcast, but then it democratizes it for everyone. And so mm. there's so much content. So like my wife is a designer, a photographer, and she's competing with like a billion other photographers on Instagram. Oh, sure. And I'm trying to, like you've mentioned this a few times, I'm trying to publish a book. And the primary thing that I hear from publishing companies is about my social media platform. Like they can, like I'll get a no from a publishing company and they'll be like, we love your content. It's so smart. You're a great writer, but you don't have enough followers. Yeah, that is the, it's the minimum bar right yep. now. And it's, it's too bad. <laughs> it is too that is a, for those for those of us who bad. don't have that you know yeah, that's exactly right for the unknown keyboard player the hammond organ player in the side stage you know like and that is that why guy? you should hit subscribe yes <laughs> now <laughs> well hit subscribe now because after this subject you're probably not going to want to so i'll just pause for three two one here's the question there is a big case right now from the ACLU. They want to decriminalize sex workers. Um, they believe that it's a, um, a solid business idea. They support the LGBTQ community, and that's what they believe should happen. So as I thought about that, I thought, all right, if we decriminalize sex wor- workers, will it actually hurt the business of sex traffickers? Mm. Just like uh, when the states uh, decriminalized selling marijuana, or a few states. So in California, uh, right, you can, you can purchase marijuana um, at a, a lot of places. You can have it delivered to your home. And so to be a, a drug dealer that deals marijuana and make a living now mm-hmm. has become uh, a little more difficult because you can get it anywhere. You can get uh, perfect strands. You, you know it's from a reliable source and things like that. I'm not saying that I condone that, but if we take that example and look at what the ACLU is doing, is that going to help sex trafficking? Like, is it going to make it harder or people mm-hmm. aren't going to want to, or is it going to hurt it? Or does it, is it not even related? That's a good question. Like, is it comparable to the legalization of marijuana? Um, and the war on drugs largely that's a, it's such a tricky question. Cause I think what it gets into is conversations about sex work also, which is like, is sex work? Cause I think this is the, this is the argument that I've heard most often from conservatives and Christians. And I think that, and that feels very genuine. So it's not like I'm just trying to riff on somebody else's argument, right? But is sex work by its very nature, even if it's regulated, even if it's protected is sex work by its very nature, um, dehumanizing, objectifying and sexualizing. And so is it a dangerous work in and of itself or is the argument similar to the one with marijuana, which is like marijuana, you know, cause conservatives usually say marijuana is a gateway drug. That's why we can't legalize it. It leads to something bad. Like we know that's not true. So is it, you know, like is it a stigma that we've applied to sex work that shouldn't be applied there or is it actually something that's dehumanizing and objectifying? Yeah. So a few years back, I worked for a VR company and helped develop a camera system and uh, started filming 3D virtual reality films. 
And it's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult to make something that's engaging. Uh, it's hard to wear the, the, the headset for very long. Um, there's all kinds of problems with people getting motion sick. So I feel like we had it down pretty well. And I was sent out on assignment to Amsterdam to film a video called Second Date. And it was, uh, a, I would call it a semi-erotic film, something I'm not really that proud of filming. But talking about this story, I want to tell you about experience. After we filmed this film, we went to dinner, and I was sitting by the two actors. And one was a girl, one was a guy, and we were talking, and I had to ask a question. I said, hey, I, I know you guys have a side gig, and this is kind of your thing, your escorts here in Amsterdam. Uh, does that make you feel bad? Do you feel taken advantage of? Are mm. you, did you, you know, were you hurt as a child by your mother, your father? And this is why you want to do this. And I took this very hard judgmental stance with it because I don't agree with it. And, um, she was very nice. She could have probably stood up and, and slapped me and pushed me over and called a bunch of her friends and they could have thrown me out of the, of the club, mm. but she didn't. She said, you know, Christian, I find great joy and pleasure with the clients that I do have. And I feel like what I do for them is very therapeutic. And mm. because it's out in the open, I don't feel that it's dangerous to me. And I'm, I'm not arrested. And so when you look around here in uh, a city that sex working is legalized, mm. um, it's not as dangerous. And it's harder to enslave somebody or trap somebody. Now, you know, I didn't believe what she said, but maybe there's some truth to it. Hmm. I do think what you just named it, there's like at least some truth to it. I've never known a woman or a man who was an escort, but I have known people who have worked as um, like in the sex industry as performers and as dancers. And that is often the reflection that I've received back is that it is that there is a taboo that is applied to people who work in that industry and almost like even a fetishization of people who work in that industry, like it's sexual and it's dangerous and then we demean and we demoralize and we villainize the people who work in that industry or we, or we, we name like their bad psychology or whatever. And we never actually take time to listen to what they're saying and what their experience is like. And I've known people to say that it, you know, it's it just every time I've, I've, I've actually had a conversation with someone who works in the sex industry, it has been challenging to the assumptions that I bring to that person. Oh, for sure. Uh, in fact, um, after that conversation, the, the guy on my right side, he's like, hey, you can just come and join us anytime you want and then find out for yourself. I was like, no, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. But um, I, when I think about legalizing or decriminalizing, right, there's two uh, parts to this, right? You can decriminalize it, then you can legalize it. Um, I grew up um, in Vegas, and prior to common belief, prostitution is, is not legal in Vegas. It's legal in Nye County, which is right outside of Vegas. But if we decriminalize sex workers in the United States, are we going to start seeing some really crazy kind of freaky things? Like, you know, you drive down the freeway and you see an apartment complex and it's like, you know, no rent for three months. Is it going to say no rent for three months, just have sex? Or like, what, what is it going to, are we going to see weird things like that? <laughs> that is not where I expected that question to go. Um, <laughs> But really, that is that is one of the arguments that I've heard is that um, if you were to legalize sex work in the United States, it would have a moral drain on society as a whole, right? That's all, that's the argument that I've heard mostly mm. is that it does something bad to the 
like the moral fabric of the universe around us. Hmm. And I don't know that, I don't know. I, this is a great question. Like it's actually really challenging to me. Like I don't know where if sex work should be legal, if it's safe, if it's helpful, if it's, if it's objectifying or sexualizing. But I do think that the way we talk about the humans that work in the sex industry is not helpful. Mm-hmm. And the way that we, then when we talk about sex trafficking, like the way that we then talk about healthcare, foster care, education, poverty, uh, border security, none of those things are helpful for the larger conversation and actual needs of those who are in sex trafficking. And so the question that you're asking, I think like, I, like, I don't know the answer, but I do know that we need to totally redo how we talk about and um, enact policy when it comes to sex trafficking in the United States. Yeah. As Trump on the surface signs this executive order to giving a bunch of money to help quote sex trafficking, we're seeing most of the money go towards prosecuting uh, people. Mm -hmm. We're seeing them deport these uh, people who've been kidnapped, brought to the United States for sex trafficking. They're deporting them back to their countries. They're not Mm -hmm. helping them. So you've got this executive order on the surface that looks really helpful, but Mm -hmm. on the tail end is not. And that's really what got me thinking of what would help. Would that help? And maybe it would. I don't know. This is a thing I have thought about a lot, which is, and I think I like as a, as a reverend, as you like to call me, I think, um, Christians do this a lot with sex trafficking where we tell, it's like a story that we like to talk about a lot. Like sex trafficking is a thing. There's a modern day slavery. It's terrible. It's bad. But I often think that it is a way for us to give money to an organization that requires very little of us. Mm. And so then it becomes, um, we'll get a little nerdy. It becomes in ideological studies, what's called a master signifier, which is basically like a flag that we wave to rally around a cause that justifies my not participating in other issues. And so I don't participate in black lives matter because well, sex trafficking is happening and it's way worse. (laughs) Um, and I don't participate in, um, like border issues because sex trafficking is happening and that's the primary issue that I'm dealing with. And it feels like Christians do this a lot. And it feels like conservatives would do it where it can justify not engaging in all other kinds of issues that are actually directly connected to sex trafficking. Yeah. That master signifier. I'm going to remember that. I feel like I have way too many master signifiers in my life. <laughs> that's right. I think like this is here's here will be controversial in this sense too. Like a master signifier, another one that's really popular and connected to this subject is abortion. Mm. And I think both pro-choice and pro-life become flags that we wave to rally around a cause. And they are, those flags kind of in a sense protect us from the other ideological camp. Like, oh, you're pro-choice, you're evil, you're bad, like you hate babies. And then if it's like, oh, if you're pro-life, oh, you hate women. And it's like, you actually are missing each other entirely because of the symbol that you wield that, that aims us against one another. Sure. I'm pro-life because I uh, don't believe in abortion. That's not me saying that statement. But when I hear that, I go, well, okay, if you're pro-life, great. Then what if the baby's born to a, a mother that's, that's addicted to mescaline and they're living in horrible, poor conditions where the child has disease and uh, is predisposed to being, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 
beaten or, you know, like all those things. How do we help that situation? Am I, am I making any sense? Totally. I, that's exactly right. When something becomes a master signifier, it no longer is about people. It's mm-hmm. about an ideological cause. Because if it was still about people, then the question of like pro-life would also be a question of how do we change healthcare systems to make affordable healthcare easily accessible? How would we change the prison pipeline system? How would we change um, like education? How would we change, you know, like whatever poverty and all these different things. And we'd be like, this is a larger conversation because we care about people and it would be nuanced and it would be grounded in love. But when it becomes a symbol of an ideological cause, it's actually not about people anymore. Yeah, I think you just named pretty much all the conversations that I have with people who don't believe in the politics the same way I do, right? And they probably think that of me too. So, that master oh, totally. we have We have our own. I have tons that I am not even that well aware of, right? Like, I get triggered by an issue and it, like I put my flag up in the air and I'm like, no, like I'm against you. I do that same thing all the time. I'm not innocent of that. Hmm. Last words. I think, I actually think there's something about both of these subjects that we've talked about that are kind of similar, which is um, none of them matter if they're just ideas that we argue about. They only matter if they are played out on the ground in real life with people around us. And so sex trafficking as a, as a, as a policy issue or a political platform, it doesn't mean anything unless it cares about people and it actually cares about the protection of people. And same with, um, like investing in the local. Teach it and preach it. <laughs> Almost Dr. Johnny Morrison wraps up our episode today of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Thank you for that. You always teach me so much when we get on this podcast. Well, Christian, thank you for asking. This was a really great question that challenged, I think, some of my own thinking and opened up some new space. Well, hey, everyone, come back again next week. Subscribe again. Leave us a review. If you want to know more about this really smart guy, Almost Dr. Morrison, reverend, author, pastor. Uh, You can go to johnnyis.com. If you want to find out a little bit more about myself, you can find out at christiansurge.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.